I think there's huge integrity in that. Because again, that is saying, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with this relationship. God gets that. God knows that. Like, it's not like God's like, oh, gee, I just don't know what's going on with John. What is wrong with John? Like, come on. God's not an idiot. Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 33. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 33. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. Well, today we have another listener feedback episode, and this uh, listener feedback episode is kind of a listener feedback about listener feedback, which is totally cool. There's a conversation going on here, and different people are getting involved. So on episode 25, which was titled Truth Over Love, listener feedback, if you want to find that episode on the website, it's untanglingchristianity.com slash 25. We'll take you right there. So we had a comment from Melinda, and Melinda was kind of responding to Greg's challenge to put forth something else or something better than love and truth. And so Melinda wrote, interesting discussion, at least the cookies that were on the shelf low enough for me to reach. How about grace and truth? I knew truth and love sounded vaguely familiar to me. Now I remember, um, and she talks about um, working with someone that talked about the idea of balancing truth and grace and personal relationships. And then she kind of goes on to say, I know God is described as love, not grace, numerous times in the Bible. So maybe there's a reason for the word choice. Is grace an aspect of love or is love an aspect of grace? To me, grace and truth seem a little easier to understand because they seem a little more like natural opposites. Truth could be saying, you have missed the mark. But grace says, I know, but I still accept and love you. Or maybe I need to figure out a clear definition of grace as distinguished from love. And then I responded with just a little comment, and you responded with a more comprehensive comment that I read and thought, oh, I bet there's a podcast here. So did you want to give any initial thoughts? Did you want to read part of your your comment back? What are you thinking? You know, I am so glad that she raised this. And I, I just feel I'm I'm really um thankful that she put this out. And to be honest, the love and truth versus grace and truth thing, um or maybe we could just boil it down, you know, love versus grace. And this has been on my mind. It's kind of been mid burner, back burner, bouncing back and forth between the two. And now finally we're kind of front burner with it. We're actually discussing it and I'm really glad we've done this. And and I just want to say, and I, and I started off my response to Melinda with this, and I want to start off this podcast with this comment. And that is the comment that the work that I've done here, you know, I'm I'm being honest, I'm expressing my my perspective and I'm I'm backing it up to a certain degree. I'm giving, you know, Melinda and and as we discuss in the podcast, I'll be, you know, giving you my reasons for holding the position that I hold. But I have to be really, really clear that this is not some sort of huge comprehensive piece of work that I've done to lay this out. 
it's it's preliminary. You know, I stand behind it, and and I'm not kind of back and forth. Oh, maybe I think this, maybe I don't. I, maybe I think that. I, I, no, I, I'm I'm pretty confident, but I can still be confident while recognizing the fact that it's preliminary. And I just want to say that before we start. Caveat noted. Okay. <laughs> so okay. now, I mean, well, I, I should actually, also. Well, I want to jump in real quick and also note that yeah. this topic also came up in episode twenty. Ah. Which was with Tommy, and again, okay. available at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 20. Anytime we mention an episode number, by the way, we've got a little shortcut system going on. So if you remember the number, you can get there. Where Tommy raised a similar thing. So I pointed Melinda at that episode as well. So mm-hmm. continue That's on. A really good. That's a really good point. I mean, I think that uh, quite possibly what we're looking at here could very well apply in that situation. So it'd be interesting to kind of expand that dialogue with Tommy a little bit in this direction. But, you know, I wanted to continue by throwing the ball back to you. Okay. Because I want to, one of the things that I have difficulty with, because I have kind of, in a certain sense, disengaged from more traditional evangelical thinking, culture, etc. When I hear this, like the notion of grace, I know grace is, is big in, in, in evangelical thought in uh, evangelical theology um, it's a term that's that's just it's it's very common but I don't for myself have a sense not so much of what it means but what it means to people how big it is how you know um, substantial and dense it is as a term that kind of identifies Christians up to other Christians probably mostly in the evangelical community. So, I mean, I guess I'm wondering from, from your background, can you, can you make that a little clearer? Can you kind of bring that out a little bit? Sure. So, and I'm, I'm not referring to any specific one situation. I think I'm, as I'm reflecting, which I often do when we talk, I'm mm-hmm. pulling together years and years of different experiences in books and teaching and whatever. And, and this is kind of what I've absorbed. It's kind of the, some total of that. So right. so I would respond by saying that grace so the way that uh, eternity salvation was always kind of summed up as Adam sinned, we inherit that from Adam, we're fallen, we're sinful, we you know the we miss the mark. Um you know, and so God can't deal with sin and so he sent Jesus and Jesus pardons our sin stands in our place so that we can be with God go to heaven etc and grace is this idea that we really deserve nothing we really deserve to pay for the penalties of our sins Mm-hmm. But because of grace, maybe grace being equated with pardon, Jesus standing in our place, grace g- grace steps in and, and does what we, I want to say excuses or overcomes, or but it's this idea of pardon. It's this idea of, of not getting what we deserve. And to push it a step forward, and this is a topic we probably beat to death— this is the reason why Christians are, quote, supposed to be so grateful for what Christ did. Hmm. 
And if you're so grateful for what Christ did and you want to go to heaven, wouldn't you want to accept him? And, oh, by the way, wouldn't you also want to make sure that you're not sinning anymore and fulfilling all the scriptures in the Bible, including the Great Commission, which means that everyone has to be a missionary? And if you get me going, I can go on and on and on and just, like, probably talk for the next hour. Oh, this is really, really good. But that's I mean, where – so that's – that's what when I think grace. What does grace mean in the context of of the Christian circles that I've been in? That's what I would say. That's I don't feel like I'm giving a totally clear and crisp answer, but that's that's where I would go. That's I I, I think that's amazing what you've just done. Um, let me just reflect that. So? <laughs> well, I'll reflect back to you what I've heard. Okay. I mean, first of all, you gave me this incredibly succinct description. It was almost like a formula of, you know, from, from uh, uh, a certain Christian beginning, sense of beginning, through to, you know, New Testament, um, the person of uh, Jesus. Uh, and what I heard in that, and, and then on into like, you know, notions of like, the, the eschatological, the, 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 the distant future. You, you gave me a whole span of time in, in terms of a biblical perspective, one biblical perspective of an entire span of, of existence. And what I heard in what you said was grace was almost the hinge between things ain't going well and now things can go in a good direction. That's that's what I sort of heard. How, how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's fair. Well, okay. and and grace almost being equated with Christ because Christ comes and, and uh, makes it all okay, right? Which is why you need him. Why you need to accept him because without him, you're going to go to a place where the temperature is too hot for you to stand. Okay. And you also said grace is like, you, you know, you, you deserve nothing, but you, you get something. You well, get something really I, good. I guess I would qualify that by saying grace is you deserve to be punished. You, uh, okay. You deserve to be punished for your sins, but grace says, no, you don't have to bear that punishment. Right. Interesting. I'm just typing in some of what you said. <laughs> it's like, are you taking notes on me? <laughs> I am. I am because th- this is really, really helpful. So grace is deserving punishment for sins. Grace says no, or grace is almost a pardon. I think right, it's kind of like what well, Melinda kind of says it in her comment as well. To me, this is quoting her again. To me, grace and truth seem a little easier to understand because they seem a little more like natural opposites. Truth could be saying you have missed the mark, but grace says I know, but I still accept and love you. Right, and then you, you made a further comment that grace, almost like grace, should prompt gratitude and obedience in Christians. Yeah, there I'm probably grinding an axe a little bit <laughs> against some of the stuff I feel like I was just given that I just want to get rid of. Sure, no, that, then that's fair. I mean, I'm happy to take what you uh, offer, axe and all. I mean, this is really interesting. So it sounds to me... I guess what what I'm hearing from you and what I'm hearing from Melinda and you know uh, what I, and I guess what I'm why I'm asking you this question is because I don't want to go with with my perception and my memory only I'd like to kind of be a little broader but but 
I think you're reinforcing what I'm hearing from you both is reinforcing my perception of my memory, which is grace is almost, if there was one central notion, if there was one central notion, grace is definitely a contender. It's a, grace is a huge contender for that central notion within Christianity. Well, one other thing too, that just popped in my head too. So, I think there would also be the encouragement that because so much grace has been extended to us, we need to extend it to other people too. Right. Where we and then the classic uh, backup for that would be the parable um of the workers, you know, they worked a different amount of time and some right. of them hardly worked at all and they got paid the same as the guys that worked the whole day and Right. So, in other words, we've been pardoned and, and grace has been extended towards us. Therefore, we need to extend it towards other people. Right. Yeah, interesting. Incidentally, yeah, it's, it's, it's a total tangent. I've been listening to The Message. I got The Message audiobook New Testament. Huh, cool. And um, it's really interesting listening to because I'm, I'm almost through the end of Matthew. And I don't know if it's the particular translation or if it's the narrator but Jesus comes across sounding so angry <laughs> and just so annoyed at the religious leaders and the people that he's dealing with. It's really interesting. So anyway, I just that parable just popped into my head because I just heard it recently. Well, it's an interesting point, you know, especially, um, and it, I think all the more so in Mark. Like, yeah, it, definitely in Matthew, there's a – the author of Matthew is is has got a real um, – agenda to push against the um particularly the pharisaical leadership but really the religious leadership of the day and then mark the mark in jesus is he's one he's one bad dude you know he's uh you know at the very beginning of mark he goes in he heals people and early in the morning he goes out he leaves the disciples you know they're looking for him they finally find him hey there's lots of people that want to see you you know sort of implying there's more people to heal he says "Uh uh-uh we got to go to the next village because that's what I was here to do. You know, and it's the same guy. This, this is the same book where we read the Syrophoenician woman. I believe it's a Syrophoenician woman, but it's a, definitely not a, a Jew who comes and asks for healing. And he says, uh, you know, basically, um, the dogs aren't worthy of, and implying you're a dog, of eating from the table. And uh, the woman replies and says but even the dogs will wait by the table for the crumbs that fall and mm. and and it's at that where you know jesus is is deeply moved i think and and uh changes his mind he says yeah okay i'm doing this you know but he's a yeah which is really interesting when we contrast it with this idea of grace you know um grace almost seems to give me the implicate give, give me the impression that um you know, good stuff will happen. God's here to make good stuff happen. And um, as you as you noted in Matthew and as I noted in Mark, uh, the road to good stuff happening is a little rougher than I think most of us typically imagine it. And that means like the road that Jesus is wanting to take us as, you know, depicted in these books is uh, a far more um, bumpy road. Um. I guess if I were to come back, for, for me, one of the things that's always been a question is, you know, what, what exactly is grace? And um, I've seen it being very central, but if I try to relate grace to my existence now, 
I have a very hard time. You know, so in other words, with my children, with my family, with my friends, I can understand love. I can understand forgiveness. I can understand mercy. I can understand a, a multitude of things. But grace, grace, um, you know, I can understand gracefulness. Someone who moves with ease or does something difficult and makes it look really smooth and, and accessible. Um, but I don't really understand grace in this Christian sense. Um, and I think there is somewhat of a distinction here. Something, grace is a little bit distinct to God and to certain situations. And I think you've kind of um, hit it on the head in terms of, well, maybe not hit it on the head. I, I was thinking about the idea of pardon, you know, but um, I, I think the thing that troubles me the most when you said, you know, grace is, is almost like punishment. We deserve punishment for our sins, but grace says no. And, and I, I think that um, Christians need to be extremely careful when they contextualize God in a way that puts the notion of sin as something I do wrong, something for which I am guilty, first and foremost. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's accurate in the Bible. Certainly not accurate in my experience. And when I reflect on what it is to be a parent, what it is to be a son, what it is to be a brother, what it is to be a friend, that's not there either. And I think we, we need to be super, super, super careful. And I think, you know, so I guess, I guess one of the reasons I'm really glad that Melinda brought this up is that Grace ties into so many things. Like you said, it's, you know, about sin. It's about pardon. Strangely, I don't see grace as often being a lot. Of, you, you, you talked about gratitude and obedience as well. But the strange thing that I'm going to raise is I don't see truth typically anywhere. Or pardon me, love. You know, I see, I guess I could see um, Melinda's point about truth being, you know, you quote unquote, you missed the mark. Right, well, love, right. well, love would be why Jesus came. Jesus came because he loved us. He Whoa. expressed his love by coming and dying. Go for that. Which for resulted in grace. Which is Go. kind of, I think, what she's saying, too. Or maybe that's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think that was kind of the outcome of what your comment was back to her. That, that's where I was going, you know, on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand... Um, you know, so she, she writes the two questions one after the other. Is grace an aspect of love or is love an aspect of grace? I think love, uh, grace is an outworking of love. It's a way that love is um, presented. You know, and I think grace epitomizes the gift that God offers us. And that, that gift begins way back in Genesis with Abraham, with the, 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 the formal... Um, instigating of a relationship, a definite relationship with a group of people through which, and this is the promise, God promises to um, bring blessing to the entire earth, to bring goodness, to overcome um, those things which are, um, you know, we learn throughout the story as the biblical text unfolds and as that story goes on, it's overcoming things that break the relationship we have with God. And those things I would call sin. 
Those are dispositions, you know, orientations, things we do and fail to do. But the notion of sin is not a list of wrongs. It's a way in which we act or fail to act that puts us at a distance from what should be our primary relationship and our primary love relationship, which is with God. Yeah, that's so interesting because so I'm I just popped into my mind. So when I was younger, I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> so they would they would serve communion like once a month at our particular church. They would do communion, and it was always this very quiet, reflective, somber hmm. thing. And I remember. I don't know if it was something I was taught or if it was something that they would say up front, but it was this whole idea of, you know, you can't, you shouldn't take communion if you have sin that you haven't dealt with. And so I remember sitting there and trying to think of like all the sins that, and and again, not thinking of them, I was thinking of them them as things that I had done wrong. And it was trying to make sure that, at least the way that I went about it was, trying to make sure that I had like asked forgiveness for all the things I had done wrong so that, you know, I, I can't remember what the tie in was, but there was some other section of scripture where it was, it was pointed out that, you know, if you participated in communion, when things weren't right, or you had sin that you mm-hmm. hadn't dealt with, you were going to be in a heap of trouble. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know what that, What's that? What that's worth, but that might add more color to where I'm coming from as well. I, I think that's worth a lot, though. You know, and I, I would see that taking it from my perspective, I would see that act of taking communion as an act of reengaging with God. It's a, it's a symbolic act of me, if you like. God's already there, sitting at a table, and me coming back and having a seat. Oh, that or, was, and that was what was so illuminating to me when I started attending Episcopal Church. Because in the Episcopal Church, from what I recall, anybody can take communion. Hmm. Whereas at the church I went to, which was very evangelical, uh, it was in the name, it was, I mean, it was like this cup is only, the communion is only for people that are in a relationship with God. Hmm. And and so it was It was kind of, it was just what you're saying. When I remember attending an Episcopal Church and thinking, well, wait a minute, yeah, if, if Christ welcomes everyone, like, why do you have to say the prayer first to, to I don't know. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've raised a lot of good points, and, and I, I'd i like to come back to a couple of those. But, I mean, my kind of just to reiterate that previous point that I think the idea of you're in a heap of trouble uh, if you don't approach this the right way is basically saying – there's a deep contradiction between engaging in this ceremonial and symbolic act and not engaging with it in a mental and emotional way. That's the deal. I don't think you have to know everything you've done wrong. Say more about the mental and emotional way. I'm not sure I tracked that. But I don't think you have to know everything you do wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think you have to have a list. I don't think you have to remember. I don't think God cares. I think what God cares is about is that you are seeking to be in right relationship with God. You are responding to God. And sometimes responding to God means responding to nothing because you don't think you've got anything. So what would I do in a communion situation like that? I'd sit there and I'd say, you know what? I've been hanging out waiting for you. 
It's not me coming to a table to find you there. It's me and I'm sitting here and I'm all alone. Where are you? What is going on? If I'm not connecting with something and you're there in front of me or something's going on that I need to be seeing, please make it clear. Please help me to get this because right now I don't. And sometimes, sometimes it means getting up and walking away from that table and saying, you know what? If I'm to be truthful and honest with myself, I don't even think you're there. And you know what? For years, for that. years, I didn't take communion. I I don't know how many years it was, and finally, I was just like, "Well, I'm not sure I feel any different, but uh, let's try something different." <laughs> <laughs> but no, I yeah, no, it was exactly what I did. I think there's huge integrity in that, because again, that is saying, "Hey, you know what? There's something wrong with this relationship." God gets that. God knows that. Like, it's not like God's like, oh, gee, I just don't know what's going on with John. What is wrong with John? <laughs> what is wrong with John? Like, come on. God's not an idiot. Like, let's not play that game. That's a, that's, that's a losing game for everybody, right? Let's, let's try to focus on the idea that, that, yes, God does know what's going on. Yes, God does care for me deeply. Yes, God does have my best interest in mind. Why? Because God loves me and God knows me better than I know myself. It is only in that context that we're in the right position to understand some of these notions. And then, I mean, this is, this is coming back to this idea of grace. Um, when I'm reading about grace um, in the New Testament, I mean, I was with the response to Melinda, I was focusing on a couple of just really just one verse. And again, I was super clear to say, hey, I'm only choosing one verse here and I'm doing that for the sake of time, for brevity and space, you know, and my response to Melinda was longer than I wanted it to be anyways. But um, I just have to be really careful to say, I don't think that one verse shows us anything. It gives us some ideas. It leads us in a direction, you know, but I, I, I'm not going to stake my entire perspective on this and I don't. But in terms of creating an example that's accessible to one person and not writing a thesis or writing a, um, a monograph, which is a which is a huge sort of uh, academic treatise. I I got to start someplace, and I've got to try to make this accessible. I don't want to put her off. So you know, again, the caveat about using a verse. I was looking in Romans, and when you're looking there, you're looking in Romans. Uh, I, was, I was looking at four sixteen, and there's this this equation of you know grace as gift, and the idea of it was a gift given to Abraham. It was a promise that was made before the covenant was made, before God engaged in deal making. God made a deal. Who does that? You can pay me whatever you like for this car, says the salesman. Okay, so let's negotiate on price. Well, if, if, your, promise, <laughs> if your promise holds, how about zero? Oh, man. Oh, that was a bad promise. Yeah, I guess my promise holds. Okay, it's zero. Here you go. Walk away with the car. Like literally, I mean, this is what God has done. And there is gift in that. There is God saying, I will do this. And then engaging in covenant. And it doesn't mean that God's a moron. It doesn't mean that the writers who wrote those texts are, are, are foolish. It means there's something far larger going on. And, and, you know, this is grace occurring, if you like. This is gift. As Paul's writing about it in the New Testament, this is gift occurring in the Old Testament. This is gift occurring at the beginning, the inception of what, of what, we, common, what we think of as Israel, right? And then in the New Testament, we've got this situation where this whole covenant thing's gone all wrong. You know, God's made a promise and God cannot make good on this promise. Why? Because Israel has taken, you know, the whole idea of national pride, 
you know, this is something to do with us as a people and aren't we special? No, that's not how God intended it. You're not special. You, you were special in the sense that God came to you, but not out of any special merit that you particularly had. Nor even, as it turns out, in terms of a special ability to be able to follow through on the deal you made. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Well, this is holding God back because God's not going to so, – so God's a little stuck. So what does God do? Well, there's, there's more grace there. There's more gift offered. Jesus comes as the one who can fulfill the covenant, who fulfills that covenant, who lives that life, and who takes on the penalties of that covenant, the penalties due to Israel – on himself. So when we're talking about the idea of faithfulness and of righteousness, it is God being faithful to God's self. It is God, God's own righteousness. You know, and this is some of these ideas in Romans that I think have become uh, uh, rather mixed up. And I think people like N.T. Wright are extremely helpful with, with extremely, ex, with, with fantastic exegesis, you know, um, and that'd be a great topic to go into sometime on a podcast. But the, the long and short of it for me is that grace is a mode, maybe it's the mode, in which God's love for us is presented. You know, grace is the how things work. But I, I you know, again, we've talked about this, John, and it's, it's like this whole idea of, you know, creation, and you've got Augustine at the late uh, 4th century really concerned about some of these um, Neoplatonic ideas that are huge on the horizon. They're very big. And you have this idea of the earth as being coexistent with God, the, the, with, the, with the divine, at least in, in, in Plato and the Neoplatonics. And uh, Augustine's very quick to say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, God created. How did God create? How did God create? Ex nihilo, out of nothing. But again, you know, we're doing the same thing with grace. How does it work? How did it work when God made the promise before entering into the covenant? Grace. How did it work when Jesus came, fulfilled the covenant, and took on the covenant punishments for Israelite having for the Israelites having broken it? Grace. The question of how is super important. I don't want to take away from it. But we have we do not have the full picture. And we have not understood God. If that is where we stop, that is not what God is about. There is a why there. And that why goes in two directions. And this is maybe a good point to raise this. There is the why of impetus. What caused you to do that in the first place? There is the why of objective. For what purpose are you doing this? Why points in two directions. It's the beginning of the project and it's the end envisaged goal. What made me do it in the first place? And what was the thing I was aiming at? Sometimes they're the same thing. Some, you know, and I'm not saying in this case because I don't think they are. Uh, but there are some cases where the word why can... You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I can't think of an example right now, but something sort of uh, everyday and commonplace. You, you might find not much distinction between the why of uh, impetus and the why of objective. Here, we've got a difference. And when I'm looking at this, on the one hand, there's, a con- there's continuity. I think, why did God do this in the first place? Why did God create? Ex amore, out of love. God created, and this is where somebody like, like Hufford is so he, he's amazing, right? What page is it? Seventy two. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I got it right here. Yes, page seventy two. Why did God create? Because love requires expression. Wow. Love. The why requires expression. That for me is the why of 
uh, impetus. What's the goal? Because love requires relationship. Love requires togetherness. Love requires belonging. And this is exactly what God is doing in, in and through Jesus. Indicated in the New Testament as bringing in God's kingdom, which is, in essence, God reclaiming all things as God, for God, for God, so that we may be in relationship with God as we are meant to be. Grace is there. It's important. But you know what? If we stop there, I think that's where a lot of the mixed upness comes in. And you know, it's also, I think, where this notion of God as sovereign. Is God a sovereign? Yep, God is. Is God only a sovereign? No way. We have misread the Bible. We have misunderstood God. We are misrelating with God. This whole idea of grace is deserving punishment for sins or deserving punishment for sins and grace sort of says no. It's more than God being a sovereign and saying, my way is the right way. I'm in charge. There's God as father and God as parent. You know, in both of those work, God, God exceeds the idea of father. But how does, right? that, how does that change the color of this then? Give me, a, give me a little bit more. What do you mean? Well, you're saying, you're saying God is sovereign. Uh, yeah, kind of supports this idea of it's, this is how it has to be and grace pardons it. But if you color that now with, well, God as father, what, how does that change things? Well, this guy's a lousy sovereign. I mean, pardon me, but who, who goes and makes a promise before you cut a deal? Well, there's, there's, the reality is God wants this to be this way. Why? Because God loves us. We are deeply beloved of God. God is not schizophrenic. God is not uh, foolish. The writers of Genesis were not uh, idiots. Uh, the, the, the notion of putting a promise to something before you put a deal on the very same thing is a very clear indication to me that God as parent is hugely, hugely, hugely involved in this process. Yes, God is sovereign, and that's the way that you know we typically see God in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. We see more and more God as Father. You know, this notion of uh, that, that that the gospel writers introduce, where Jesus is addressing God as Abba, uh, where Jesus, in the only example that we have, where the disciples say, "Teach us to pray." How does how does he start to pray? The first words of that are crucial. Our Father, right? That relationship. Not it could be our Lord, it could be our King, our Sovereign. Why? Why not? So that's interesting. It, so is, does the does the notion of Father only come out in the New Testament, or is it? Do you see it in the Old Testament as well? I'm. I've. I've got to be. I've got to believe it's in the Old Testament too. I haven't looked at it that that closely in the Old Testament to know. But I know if you're talking like in, in, in things like, like really kind of crucial sections where the covenant is being laid out, like Deuteronomy 6, um, you find this really strange blend. God is presented as sovereign, 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 and yet love is involved. You don't need to love a sovereign. You, you don't, that doesn't work. It's, it's kind of strange. You need to obey, right? Or you're going to suffer the penalties, and I think this is for me where this whole love and truth thing is fleshed out. Um, you know, Christians are referred to in the New Testament, in the Bible, both as servants and as children. 
you know, those who are in relationship with God are both servants to God and children of God. And we've got these two main headings. And I think if we see things in these two ways, if we allow these two perspectives to be mutually informing and mutually kind of at times uh, critiquing, you know, so I can go overboard on love. Well, that truth notion is going to bring me back. It's no less important. I can go overboard on truth. Well, that love notion is going to bring me back, right? And that relationship that I have with God needs to be a judicious mix of these two things in tension. Tension how? A productive tension. A tension. And, and how do I know that it's productive? My life is better. I like who I am. Simple, simple things. Can that be misleading? You know, can I say, oh, gee, I'm a drug dealer and I like who I am? <laughs> Maybe. I'm sure there are times when, I'm sure there are times that you kind of feel like that, but I think that kind of stuff finds you out over time. And I would say the test for this is over time. You know, there's no ultimate test. I can't provide anybody with with ultimate kind of proof, but nobody's going to provide you with any sort of ultimate proof ever. That resides in God or in the divine or in the end of all things. However you want to look at that. We're all wagering. We're all making our best guess, our most educated guess. Um, and And I'm just... My goal here is to be as succinct and convincing as I can be that this is the way to go because this is, I, I deeply believe this, you know, it's, my life has been changed. So I don't know. What, what do you think about that? It sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything that you said that was like, nah, I don't think so. But at the same time, if, if someone were to, if I were to take what you just said and tell someone else it's true... Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not exactly sure that I'd be very good at backing it all up. I guess, I guess maybe another way. So Melinda's comment came out of my challenge to listeners, which was, if you don't think love and truth is a good way to go, if these are not co if these ideas are not the main ideas, what ideas are the main ideas? Or is there only one? What would you put at the top of the pyramid? And I guess part of my reply, which I didn't offer to Melinda, but maybe through this process of teasing out some other points about it, would be that I am not sure that the typical evangelical understanding of grace as, you know, people are deserving punishment for sins, but grace sort of says no, and that's where we stop. I don't think that understanding is sufficient to do justice to the examples of love that I read and God's love that I read in the Bible and to the examples, certainly not to the examples I have experienced in my own life. So play, okay, so play that out maybe. So, so you would say that if we're just stopping at grace's pardon for wrongdoing, like how would you play that on through and maybe even use a personal example if you can? Um, Okay, I'm I'm happy to use a personal example. I just want to understand a little bit more of what you mean by play it on through. So, personal example of what of me experiencing grace or me being loved or by God or yeah, grace. Like in other words, your what I heard you say was that do you think that sometimes evangelicals stop too soon with grace? So if they don't, if if you're saying now they shouldn't stop there, how far should they keep going? What should where if it doesn't stop there, where does, where does it go? 
Well, I think, I think again, this, this whole, you know, how and why. We stop and we figure out how something works. Well, no. You, you, knowing how it works, knowing how a car works, isn't a, isn't a good explanation, isn't any explanation as to why I should use it, when I should not, what it means to, to be, you know, consuming fossil fuels. It's this whole meta discussion, right? And God is all through all parts of this discussion. So I can give you something that's extraordinarily personal and I'm, I'm okay to give it. And I don't think we've ever talked about this. And this may seem odd or strange, but, um, you know, I put it out there as something that's, it's mine. I, I believe in it and, and I, I, I stand by it. Um, so I, in 19, I don't know, I was just in my early twenties. My father and brother had just been killed actually just before that, before they, before they were killed in the accident in uh, 1991. So, you know, it's over 20 years ago now. Uh, they were killed in the same car accident. I, w- I was writing, just doing a lot of personal writing. And the writing really transformed into poetry. And I was writing poetry for a lot of years, you know, um, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve years. And that's gradually tapered off and changed into, you know, more academic writing and, and, and more, more writing that I might do, for example, on my blog. Um, and I had two over that time, and I'm, I'm talking like a lot, like a, like some days it would be, some months it would be, I'd be, I'd be writing, you know, a couple pages the other day. And one of the experiences that I had, I had two experiences where I felt like there was another presence, not forcing me to write, but somehow there was a connection that was more than just me connecting to my my anger, my sadness, my fear, my emotions, my expectations, all of those things, you know. And, and one of these was in 98 after I'd been writing for a number of years. And, and part of what happened is I was writing and my, my, my writing sort of transformed into something that I could only describe as um, – it's like a dialogue. It was like a communication. And, and, and my, my interpretation of what happened, you know, my interpretation isn't foolproof, but my interpretation is that it was an engagement with God. And it was just before I went to Labrie in 1999. 1999 was a big year for me because uh, we had been at Labrie in Switzerland in 95, 96. I had gone from being a very um, you know, hostile atheist or agnostic maybe to being somebody who um, I, I had really been touched very, very deeply by by love, by the love of a person there, but also of God working in, working through, um, almost uh, my word for it is often subtending, upholding, acting below, like a deep, deep, deep note that was played in the, the acts of love that, that helped change me. Uh, notes almost so deep that you hear them. Pardon me, you don't hear them, but you feel them. And as I was, as we were preparing, Susan and I were preparing to go back to Labrie, it was the end of 1998. I had this, this um, instant incident one night when I was writing and my poetry just, I was, I just thought I just had this sense and I just, I just kept writing and it wasn't as though it it was like a conversation was going on and I was tracking it down and it was, it was, it was part of a conversation to me and it was the grace. I guess that's where I would most identify grace. It was this, this sense and some of the words in there were, you know, this sense that God had 
had endured me damning God, had endured me hating God, had endured me throwing everything I had against God, had endured all of my almost endless anger and resentment and, re, you know, rejection. And, um, and I think those things are accurate. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an accurate description of my attitude towards God. And it was not this sort of list of wrongs. It's not like that. It was, I've longed for you. I've longed for you. I miss you and I hold up my hands for you. I hold up my arms to you. I wait on the road. I wait to see you. Come back to me. All the things you put out there, all the hate and damnation and all of the rejection. I want you. I want you to come back to me. I want you to be with me. And um, there were some other comments that were, <laughs> if you can imagine it, more intimate than that, more deeply associated with who I am, with who I understand myself to be. And I just thought, this is not... This is not me writing this. I'm writing the words down. This is not coming from my head. This is not coming from my emotions. This is not coming from a movie I've seen. This is, this is much bigger. And it was this, this enormous sense. And one of the lines that caught me, it just caught me. This was a part of it that I always, well, one of the two parts I always come back to. And I couldn't get it right, and I had to let let it go because it was almost like there weren't words for this in English. And by that time, I've already studied French, German, Russian. I could have flipped into any of those languages. There was no words for it. It was this, I cannot, will not let you go. I cannot, will not let you go. It was something like that. It wasn't cannot, and it wasn't will not. It was somehow both and somehow more than that. But this idea that God is so... God is so for us. God is so desirous of us that it exceeded my ability in any language that I then knew to account for that. So this is fascinating. So, so you're, you're having this experience before, though, you would call yourself a Christian. Absolutely. Though not before I, f I had, you know, had this experience of being at Labrie this Christian place that I went to to kind of put Christianity behind me. And all of a sudden, you know, over the next 97, 98, being back in Canada, uh, all I can do is think about this place. It's all I could think about. It's all, it's the only place I wanted to be. And I, I think that behind that, behind my experience also of writing and of being this kind of cannot, will not let you go, despite everything you've done and said, I, I, I want you every bit as much. Behind that and, and behind the desire for, to be back at Brie was this sense, this incredible sense of belonging and acceptance that exceeds grace. It's not about grace. Grace is the vehicle, sure, but the destination, that is love. That is love. And the only way 
that that love is significant is if it's real, if it's true. That, it, you know, I'm truly known, that the person that I, uh, who is expressing love to me truly loves me and that, that I am kind of engaging with that person, that I'm caught up in the true nature of that relationship, which is really love. And I guess that's, um, maybe we've, we've come through the side door here, John, on a discussion that I know you've been wanting to have for a long time. Really? <laughs> well, this whole love and truth thing, I mean, I didn't expect this, actually. I didn't expect it at all. Coming, to this, coming to this particular account? or Well, yeah, and just this sense of um, being able to articulate you know, my experience writing in late 1998 as I'm sitting at home in Canada and before I've gone to Switzerland, before, in, you know, about a year later, I sort of say, okay, you know, begrudgingly, I am a Christian. It's just the way I am. I've fallen in love and, and yeah, I'm going to, I, I, I got to be there. I, that's what I am. I'm going to admit it and I'm going to say that's where I stand, even though a lot of me uh, feels like I'm a complete idiot for doing this. But I, no, I just didn't, I didn't predict uh, the tie-in as much, I guess. Which is crazy because I'm always talking about grace and, uh, truth, uh, truth and love. So, Oh, uh, okay. I think I just got it. So you're saying that, that, that it was potentially at that moment that you started to arrive at some of these, at this idea of love and truth. Well, I, I don't know if it's so much then that I started to arrive at the idea. I think part of it was forming. But some I of guess the what, seeds have been, some more seeds were planted. Some more seats were planted, but also I'm talking about in this particular discussion that we're having now, I didn't think that the discussion would lead so strongly and help me in a, an even better way than I have before to formulate the nature and importance of the relationship between love and truth, truth and love. And to me, the, the, the amazing thing, too, is that in 1999, I met you. I know. <laughs> Here we are all these years later. It's, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow, it's I just feel so thing. honored to know you. I just, all the experiences you. that you've had and just, yeah, I mean, people listening to this may think, oh, these guys know each other so well. They go back, and we do go back a ways, but we've never, I mean, I guess we overlapped in Switzerland for maybe six months. But uh, other than so, that, we've never lived in the same city, and we see each other fairly infrequently. Yeah. So, yeah. so there are, and but we do talk a lot. But there, there are probably big pieces of each other's lives that we don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I don't outside of Susan, I don't think I've ever uh, recounted that story to anyone. I've certainly never read the whole poem to anyone. Um. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you saying you feel. You know, I'm not sure if honored was your word. It was. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm glad you don't feel like I'm a... Sometimes with some of these things, I feel a little... I've got to admit it. I feel a little freakish. I'm like, ah, I don't know if I can if I can talk about that. This is not because it's so personal, but because it's like, you know, is it believable? And, you know, I, I, I readily admit that, that that people don't have to take my word on things. They could, they could still say, oh, gee, you know... Uh, it was your brain. It was you. It wasn't anything to do with God. God's not there. And, and you know, and I, I'm not going to sit here and try to argue and prove the the reverse. But I think that um, for me, it's been this long series of situations and events that have kind of 
when when brought together, they create this horizon, this panorama. And uh, I can look the other way, but I don't want to. I like what I see. And I like the me that I see when I'm looking that way. Why would I want to do that? Why would I not want to take that? If I think it's true, I believe it's true. And I believe that there are huge benefits. I mean, it's just win, win, win. Who wouldn't want that? And I guess that's what gets me going when we have these podcasts and we have these discussions. This is what gets me going when I think about, okay, you know, the value to me has been enormous. What could it be to other people? And I wager maybe similarly enormous. Well, I was thinking... (laughs) We should probably close this one out. I was thinking yeah. when you mentioned that you had only shared it with Susan and me, I was like, well, <laughs> you may just have expanded that audience. <laughs> well, Given we'll the see. unknown numbers, yeah, untold the untold numbers, numbers. Well, we don't really know how many people listen. But so, yeah. so on that note, I'll say listener feedback is it's totally valuable. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting in your car at home, wherever you are listening to this, maybe you're out running. If you think, you know, I have an idea for a comment or there's something I'd like to share, but it's probably dumb. It's not. So it could, pro- it could who knows what it could, who knows what kind of a jumping point off, jumping off point it could be. So exactly. we love hearing from people. I think our total commenter count now is at three. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so if you've commented before, comment again. If you haven't commented, we'd love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. Spooky music. All right. It's the time. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 33. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.